This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Before I start the episode, I have a quick announcement. True Crime Truckers podcast now has its own website. Visit www.ageofradio.org backslash true crime trucker backslash to listen to all my previous episodes as well as to access links to my sponsors if you go to my sponsors websites through mine and you make a purchase it doesn't cost you anything extra and it kicks a little money back to my show once again that website is www.ageofradio.org backslash true crime trucker backslash this podcast deals with true crime i will be speaking frankly and openly about crimes such as murder rape and sexual assault listener discretion is advised When you think of organized crime, what generally comes to mind? Most likely the Italian Mafia, right? Images of the Godfather or Goodfellas probably comes up. Or maybe, now after the fall of the Iron Curtain, the Russian mob. They seem to be the newest movie bad guys in such films as The Equalizer or John Wick. But in the past, there was a group of criminals just as vicious and organized, the Irish mob. This is the story of one Irish mobster who traded in legitimate life for a life of crime, who took on the Italian mob and won. It only cost him his life. Tonight, on the True Crime Truckers podcast, I bring you the story of Danny Green. John Patrick Green was born in Cleveland to parents John Henry Green and Irene Cecilia Green. His father was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but his mother was born in Pennsylvania. Three days after his birth, Green's mother died. He was called Baby Green until his mother was buried and was eventually named after his grandfather, Daniel John Green. His father drank heavily and eventually lost his job as a salesman for Fuller Brush. After this, Danny temporarily moved in with his grandfather, a newspaper printer, 
who had also been recently widowed. Unable to provide for him, Danny's father placed him in Parmadale, a Roman Catholic orphanage in Parma, Ohio. In 1939, Danny's father began dating a nurse and married her. They started their own family and brought Danny home. At age six, he resented his stepmother and ran away on several occasions. His parental grandfather took him in, and Danny lived with him and an aunt for the rest of his childhood in the Collinwood neighborhood. I met Daniel Green when I was in the seventh grade, and he was in the eighth grade at St. Jerome School. Danny was always in the hallway. He never did his work. The grandfather slept all day because he worked all night. Danny never came to school. He was always dirty, and he grew up all by himself. I mean, as a little kid, nobody seemed to care about him. His mother died. His father left him. He had a terrible beginning in his little life. So Danny never had anyone really to give him some rules, and so his life was a mess. So he tried to find peace by finding order, and the order was, get out of here, bang. That's the order. It wasn't his fault. It's his background that made him be who he was, I believe. He was always quiet. Quiet people don't necessarily mean they don't know anything. It means that they are paying attention, keeping it all inside, and then it blows up. Danny's grandfather worked nights, so he was able to roam the roads at night. When his father died in 1959, the newspaper obituary listed his children from his second marriage, but didn't mention Danny. At St. Jerome Catholic School, Danny developed a great fondness for the nuns and priests. He developed a lasting friendship with some of his teachers and served as an altar boy. An athletic boy, he excelled at baseball and was an all-star basketball player. Although Green was a poor student, the nuns at St. Jerome let him play sports because he was valuable for the team. Green attended St. Ignatius High School. In frequent fights with Italian-American students, children of more recent immigrants struggling for a place, Danny developed an intense dislike for Italians that lasted his entire life. After being expelled from St. Ignatius, he transferred to Collinwood High School, where he excelled in athletics. A Boy Scout for a short time, he was kicked out of his troop. He was expelled from Collinwood High School due to excessive tardiness, which he claimed was caused by bullying of fellow students. After being expelled from high school in 1951, Green enlisted in the United States Marines, where he was soon noticed for his abilities as a boxer and a marksman. He was stationed at Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina. He was transferred many times, possibly because of behavioral issues. Promoted to the rank of corporal in 1953, Green taught new junior Marines how to be artillerymen. He was honorably discharged later that year. As an adult, Green stood 5'10 and was self-conscious about his personal appearance. He pursued physical fitness, lifting weights and jogging. As he became older, he quit smoking and drinking and had hair plugs. He followed a rigid diet of fish, vegetables, and vitamin supplements. Green was a devoted animal lover and owned two pet dogs. He had a habit of putting out food for the birds and squirrels.
In the early 1960s, Green worked steadily as a longshoreman in the Cleveland docks, years before the work was unionized by the International Longshoremen's Association, or the IOA. In his free time, he read about Ireland and its turbulent history. He began to think of himself as a Celtic warrior. Some writers have speculated that reading about such warriors inspired his criminal ambitions. In 1961, the president of the local union was removed from office by the ILA, and Green was chosen to serve as interim president. He handily won the next election. Once president, Green had the union office painted green to represent his Irish ethnicity and installed thick green carpeting. He was known to drive a green car, wear green jackets, and often handed out green ink pens. In office, he raised dues 25% and pushed workers to perform, quote, volunteer hours to assist in providing a, quote, building fund. Those who refused often found themselves losing work. He fired more than 50 members while denouncing them as, quote, winos and bums to other workers. Green led sometimes violent protests and strikes to force the Steve Dorr companies to allow the ILA to oversee the hiring of dock workers. As a prerequisite to landing a job as a longshoreman, many workers had to unload grain from the ships on a temporary basis and turn their paychecks over to Green, said to have been collected to build a union hall. Most of the funds ended up in Green's personal bank account. An unidentified ILA member would later recall about Green, quote, He read on the waterfront. He imagined himself as a tough dock boss, but he was 30 years too late. He used workers to beat up union members who did not come in line, but he was never seen fighting himself. He was a spellbinding speaker and a good organizer, unquote. As a union organizer, Green sometimes declared work stoppages as frequently as 25 per day to demonstrate to company owners his authority on the docks. On one occasion, he threatened to murder the two children of one owner. The FBI put the man's house and family under protection. After Sam Marshall, an investigator reporter, collected affidavits that supported charges of extortion, Green was exiled from the union and convicted of embezzlement. The conviction was later overturned on appeal. Rather than face a second trial, he pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of falsifying union records and was fined $10,000 and received a suspended sentence. Afterwards, he did not pay the fine or receive any prison time. After returning to his rackets, Green met and befriended Teamsters boss Louis Triscaro. He introduced Green to Jimmy Hoffa. After the friendly meeting, Hoffa later reportedly said to Triscaro, quote, Stay away from that guy. There's something wrong with him. Unquote. Marty McCann of the Organized Crime Division of the FBI recruited Green as an informant. He became a top echelon confidential informant. Green passed along information to the FBI, but only that which suited his personal need and would not hurt those close to him. His codename was, quote, Mr. Patrick a reflection of his Irish pride. It was his confirmation name and that of his beloved Irish saint. Protected by his informant status, Green increased his criminal activities. By 1964, the members of the union were fed up with Green's behavior. The Plain Dealer began to write a nine-part investigative series about him. 
the series brought Green unwanted attention from the U.S. Attorney, an Internal Revenue Service, the Labor Department, and the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor. The ILA began its own investigation and soon removed Green from office. Eventually, Green was convicted in federal court of embezzling $11,500 in union funds, as well as two counts of falsifying records. The verdict was overturned by an appeals court, and federal prosecutors finally settled for Green's guilty plea to two misdemeanor charges. He was fined $10,000, but paid only a fraction of it. There are some who think that his FBI connections worked to lessen his punishment. After nearly four years of devoting all my energies to get the dock workers in Cleveland a fair shake, and I found that my only compensation is headlines in a newspaper and bullets through my window. Before March 1961, I was a longshoreman working in the holds of ships, and when I was asked to take over this union and make something of it. Under my administration, the union has moved from a cubby hole to a fine quarters near the Fort Waterfront where members could be proud to gather. The pay envelopes of the Cleveland dock workers have increased 40% and $200,000 in welfare funds have been accumulated to care for the future and security of the men. Winos and drifters have disappeared from the waterfront. Criminals and pilfers have been dismissed. Decent men supporting families have taken their place. Dan, there's some story going around in Cleveland that it might have been you that fostered the shots through the front window of your home. How do you feel about that statement? Well, there's lots of stories going around that it might have been a dissident group. Either one of them, uh, I believe, would possibly, could either one of them would do anything so obvious. I think it's the work of a crank of some sort. Green started working for the Cleveland Solid Waste Trade Guild, where he was hired to, quote, keep the peace. Impressed with his abilities, mobster Alex Shonder Burns hired him as an enforcer for his various numbers operations. Burns was not a guy who did violence. He needed someone uh, to serve as his muscle. The Cleveland family underboss Frank, quote, little Frank, Borcanto, used Green and other Irish-American gangsters to act as errand boys and as muscle to enforce the Mafia's influence during the 1960s over the garbage hauling contracts and other rackets. Until his death in 1973, Brincano reported regretting bringing Green into the mob due to the damage Green did. In May 1968, under Burns' orders, Green was supposed to attack a black numbers man who was holding out on protection money due. Danny Green decided that a bomb would be the most effective weapon. Unfamiliar with the military-type detonator, Green barely made it out of his car before the bomb exploded. He told the police a story and survived being thrown nearly 20 feet, although the explosion permanently damaged the hearing in his right ear. He told the reporters that he was just minding his own business when an oncoming vehicle stopped alongside his and somebody threw a bomb in his car, and he was just trying to get rid of it when it blew up. In the future, Green would only trust professionals to handle bombs for him. Mike, Big Mike, Fratto, broke away from the guild and founded a more legitimate trade group called the Cuyahoga County Refuse Hullers Association. A legitimate businessman, he protested Green bringing mob involvement and strong-arm tactics to the guild, although he had his own connections. The Cleveland Solid Waste Trade Guild fell apart shortly thereafter.
Fredo would have none of it. He didn't want Danny Green telling him what to do, and the two became enemies. In 1971, Fredo's car was destroyed by a bomb. Inside was found an accomplice of Green named Art Sneppinger. Sneppinger had allegedly been careless with the bomb he was planning, and Fredo was across the street. That previous September, Green had directed Sneppinger to fix a bomb on Fratto's car, but Sneppinger had second thoughts and informed Fratto of Green's plan. Sneppinger had also been a police informant and revealed everything to Sergeant Edward Kavasik of the Cleveland Police Intelligence Unit, including Green's status as a top echelon FBI informant. Art laid out all of Danny's misadventures told us about attempted bombings, told us about the grievance unit, and we began an investigation. He said Danny had found out that he had made this statement and he was going to kill him, and Art was afraid. And we told him, you know, Art, you're dead, and you have to come with us now. You have no choice. He said, okay, I'll come in. And I said, do you want to go somewhere? No, no, I'll take care of it. Some investigators believe the explosion was an accident caused by a radio signal, possibly from a shortwave radio or a passing police car. Others posited that Burns and Green arranged Sneppinger's death after learning of his informant status. Sergeant Kavasik was told by an underworld source that Green had pushed the detonator, killing Sneppinger instantly. The case was never officially solved. November 26, 1971, Fredo was shot and killed at Cleveland's White City Beach. Green was arrested and interrogated. He admitted to killing, but claimed self-defense. He said Fredo had fired three shots while Green was jogging and exercising his dogs, and he fired one back. Evidence seemed to corroborate Green's story, and he was released. Danny was investigated on homicide charges, but he was eventually cleared and found not guilty of any criminal charges. It was determined to have been an act of self-defense. Cleveland police later learned that Fratto was armed and had an opportunity to kill Green several weeks prior to the White Beach shooting. During their partnership, Green and Fratto had become so close that they named their sons after each other. Not long afterwards, Green again found himself a target while jogging in White City Beach. A sniper, concealed several hundred feet away, fired several shots at Green from a rifle. Instead of ducking to the ground, Green pulled out his revolver and started shooting while running towards his would-be assassin. 
the sniper fled and was never positively identified. Investigators learned that this attempt was part of a murder contract left by Burns. Green left his wife and their three children for their own safety and moved into Collinwood, where he rented an apartment. Journalist Ned Whelan wrote about Green, quote, imagining himself as a feudal baron. He supported a number of destitute Collinwood families, paid tuition to Catholic schools for various children, and, like the gangsters of the 20s, actually had 50 20-pound turkeys delivered to needy households on Thanksgiving, unquote. He often picked up restaurant tabs for friends, neighbors, and acquaintances, and left generous tips. Green evicted a bookmaker who operated out of a small Waterloo business and kept a local bar in order by personal visits. When a rowdy group of Hells Angels moved into Collinwood, Green visited their headquarters with a stick of dynamite. He threatened to light it and throw it in their clubhouse until they came out to hear his mourning to keep things quiet while in Collinwood. He formed his own crew of young Irish-American gangsters called the Celtic Club. His main enforcers were Keith Ritson, Kevin McTaggart, Brian O'Donnell, Danny Green Jr., and Billy McDuffie, who set up gambling dens across the city. He also allied with John Nardi, a Cleveland family labor racketeer who wanted to overthrow the leadership. Underworld crime figures such as James Icepick Sterling, a gun and explosive expert, is believed to have almost 60 contract killings under his belt, but was never arrested or questioned in any of the Cleveland bombings. He, quote, retired after Green's 1977 death. Sterling moved to Troy, Michigan. relationship between Green and Burns began to sour. Green had asked Burns for a loan of $75,000 to set up a, quote, cheat spot, a speakeasy and gambling house. Burns arranged for it through the Gambino crime family. The money was lost in the hands of Burns' courier, Billy Cox, who purchased cocaine. The police raided his house, arrested him, seized the narcotics and what was left of the $75,000. The Gambino family wanted their money. Burns pressed Green, who flatly refused to return it, reminding him that he couldn't return something he never received, and that Burns' courier had lost it. To settle the dispute, Burns directed an associate to hire a hitman for Green and gave him $25,000 for the job, especially in the event any harm befalling him. It was open season. The word went out. Killed Danny. Several minor underworld characters, burglars by trade, took the contract, but made numerous failed assassination attempts on Green. Not long after, Green found an unexploded bomb in his car when he pulled into a Collinwood service station. The explosive was wired improperly and failed to detonate, 
Green disassembled the bomb himself, removed the dynamite, and brought the rest of the package to policeman Edward Kovacic. Kovacic offered him police protection, but he refused. He refused to hand over the bomb, telling him, quote, I'm going to send this back to the old bastard that sent it to me, unquote. Danny said, here, some SOB put this on my car. And he handed me a clothespin, a timer, a battery, and a blasting cap. But the explosives were missing. So I said, Danny, uh, what about the explosives? And he said, those are going back to the SOB that put them on my car. Suspecting that Burns was behind it, Green decided to retaliate. On March 29, 1975, Holy Saturday, the eve of Easter, Burns was blown up by a bomb containing C4, a potent military explosive, in the lot behind Christie's Lounge, the former Jack and Jill West Lounge, a go-go spot at 2516 Detroit Avenue, near St. Malachi's Church. We were picking up body parts all over the lot. My thinking was it was definitely Danny that did it, and I told him that. And he said, why do you think I'd do it? I said, because of your ego. Nobody else was going to do it but you. On May 12th, an explosion rocked Collinwood. Green's building was destroyed, but the man had only minor injuries. As the second floor fell, he was shielded from the debris by a refrigerator that had lodged against a wall. A second, more powerful bomb failed to explode, for which Green credited the intercession of St. Jude, whose medal he always wore around his neck. There were two bombs. When the first bomb went off inside the place, he was with his girlfriend, and they heard the glass breaking, and they jumped up and they ran in the back, and he got next to a refrigerator, and he said it was like riding an elevator. They just kind of went down to the bottom, hit the bottom, and bounced around a little bit and went to the hospital. She was fine. The second bomb hadn't gone off because of the stupidity of the bomb makers. They took two blasting caps and they put them together and they added up the strength of the two caps. And they added up the blast, the number of the two blasting caps and it was higher than what was needed to detonate military explosives. And the one blasting cap went off and the other one didn't. And uh, they had it attached to a five gallon can of gas and if that would have gone off, if five gallons can of gas and the uh, bomb, well, it, would have been, it would have been devastating to the neighborhood. In 1975, Green began to push into the vending machine racket, traditionally controlled by the mafia, as well as muscling into gambling operations. The Cleveland family leadership was angry, especially the soldiers, Thomas, the chairman, Sinato. He thought that Green was an extortionist. Due to the excessive fees he charged for coin-operated laundry contracts, Green controlled some of the more lucrative laundry contracts that Sinito wanted. Sinito and mob soldier Joey, Joey Luz, La Cobachi murdered one of Green's associates. Green had dynamite wired to the frame of Sinito's car, but Sinito found the bomb, removed it, and disarmed it, and later destroyed it. In Green's competition with the Mafia to build a vending machine empire, John Conti became a victim. Conti owned a vending machine company, but worked as a route man for another one. His company provided slot machines to various private clubs and parties. Conti was also 
a close friend of Joseph Gallo. On the day of his disappearance, Conti told his wife that he had a meeting with Green. That was the last time she saw him. As his badly beaten corpse was discovered a few days later at a dump site in Austintown. Police investigators theorized that Conti was beaten to death in Green's trailer, and his body later transported to Austintown. They found some physical evidence, but Green was never charged with Conti's murder. In 1976, longtime mobster John Scalish died, leaving control of Cleveland's lucrative criminal operations, specifically the city's Teamsters Union locals, up for grabs. Scalish had appointed James Licavoli as his successor, but other mobsters such as John Nardi challenged him for leadership of the organization. With the assistance of Green, within weeks Nardi had many of Licavoli's supporters killed. They included Licavoli's underboss, Leo Lips Mosseri. The thing that Danny didn't understand about organized crime in Cleveland was the, the, the mafia itself. The breadth of this organization, not so much locally, but nationally, how they were tied in from different cities and what power they had and what pride they had in this organization that nobody messed with them unless you were law enforcement you didn't mess with the mob and that's that's something that danny didn't understand when he and john nardi had leo Mosseri killed i don't think danny realized that the whole force of the organization was going to be brought down on him because of that one particular murder when danny killed Shonder burns that was one thing Shonder was not part of the organization he was not part of the mafia but when danny killed and, and uh, uh, Leo Mosseri, or had Leo Mosseri killed, uh, that was a different story, and that's the point that Jack Licavoli had to have John Nardi and Danny Green killed, because that was the underboss of the Cleveland Mafia. You don't kill the underboss of the Cleveland Mafia. The Cleveland family's enforcer, Eugene the Animal Sisulo, was seriously injured and sidelined for several months by a car bomb. Soon after, a bomb planted in Alfred Ali Calabresi's car killed an innocent man. Frank Perseo of Collinwood died while moving Calabresi's Lincoln Continental before getting in his own car out of their shared driveway. This began a long-standing war between Licavoli's Cleveland crime family and Green's Celtic Club. In 1976 alone, 36 bombs exploded around the Cleveland area which was soon given the moniker Bomb City, USA. The ATF tripled its staffing in Northeast Ohio in order to handle the bomb investigations. A suspected bomb maker, Martin Heitman, was arrested, but released for lack of evidence. According to To Kill the Irishman by Rick Perello, Green killed at least eight of the mafia hitmen sent to assassinate him using bombs or bullets. After the failed Waterloo Avenue bombing, Green played up the story of the Mafia's failed assassination attempts to his benefit. His bravado and flamboyant behavior only added to his growing aura of invincibility and power in the urban legends of Cleveland criminal underworld. He granted interviews to local television stations. For a newspaper photographer, he posed proudly in front of a boarded-up window of his destroyed apartment building. During a television interview, Green said to one television reporter, quote, The luck of the Irish is with me, and I have a message for those yellow maggots that includes the payers and the doers. 
The doers are the people who carried out the bombing. They have to be eliminated because the people who paid them can't afford to have them remain alive. And the payers are going to feel great heat from the FBI and local authorities. And let me be clear about something else. I didn't run away from the explosion. Someone said they saw me running away. I walked away. Unquote. In response to reporters' assertions that, like a cat, Green had nine lives, Green said, quote, I am Irish Catholic. I believe that the guy upstairs pulls the strings, and you're not going to go until he says so. It just wasn't my time, unquote. In another televised interview, he denied any knowledge of the underworld war. He said, quote, I have no axe to grind, but if these maggots and so-called mafia want to come after me, I'm over here by the Celtic Club. I'm not hard to find, unquote. On May 17, 1977, Green's longtime ally, John Nardi, was killed by a bomb, planted by Pasquale Cisterno and Ronald Cariba. After Nardi was murdered, Mafia boss James Licavoli arranged a ceasefire with Green, hoping to catch him off guard and kill him. Shortly after their meeting, Green muscled in on a large West Side gambling operation, originally run by Nardi. Green offered Licavoli a percentage, but it was declined. Licavoli had sought the help of a mob associate and hitman named Ray Ferrito, a tall, nervous man who constantly chewed antacids because of an ulcer. Ferrito had long wanted to be a, quote, made man, and it was agreed upon that if he killed Green, he would be made a member of the Cleveland family. On October 6, 1977, Green went to a dental appointment at the Brainerd Place office building in Lynnhurst, Ohio. Ferrito had tapped his phone and was aware of the visit. After Green visited a dentist and left the building, he approached his car. The automobile parked next to his exploded, killing Green instantly. The car bomb was planted by hitman Ray Ferrito. We decided that uh, there would have to be more than one plan because uh, Mr. Green was the type of guy who... Uh, thought himself as a general. So we had a bank of crew. There was another crew there, two fellows with the high-powered scoped rifle who were parked in the uh, parking lot of the building where the dentist was located. And uh, they were supposed to take a shot at him if there was an opening. But they uh, chickened out and they left. And so we used the last uh, method that we had. That was the bomb car. We uh, had a car that was set aside, and in the car there was a box built to the side of the door of the car where we would put dynamite, which we would park next to his car, and uh, we would trigger it off at a distance. It happened that when he did come for his uh, dental appointment, we were there and waited till he uh, came out of the building. When he went to get into his car, uh, I ignited the, uh, the dynamite with the remote control device. Green's remains were cremated on October 8, 1977, and he was buried at Calvary Cemetery in Cleveland.
In the aftermath of Danny Green's murder, his hitman Ray Ferrito was arrested by Cleveland police. It turns out that a witness to the crime, who was an artist, witnessed Ferrito leaving the scene and drew a sketch of him for the police. Ferrito was subsequently targeted by Licavoli. Ferrito surrendered himself to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and struck a deal in order to gain protection. This all led to the Mafia Commission trial, which put Mafia families from all over the United States, especially all of New York's five families, the Gambino, Genovese, Colombo, Lucchese, and Bonanno crime family on trial. This trial practically ended the existence of the Cleveland Mafia. Danny Green's murder acted as a springboard for a crime crackdown. Roughly 22 convictions were made in relation to his death. His life inspired several books, including To Kill the Irishman, The War That Crippled the Mafia, in 1998 by Rick Perello. That book is also the basis for the film Kill the Irishman, from 2011, starring Ray Stevenson as Green, Christopher Walken as Burns, Vincent D'Onofrio as Nardi, and Val Kilmer as Kvasik. This is about the fourth time someone's tried to kill you. I'm an Irish Catholic with the grace of God on my shoulder. If any of these maggots from the so-called mafia want to come after me, I'm not a hard man to find. Danny Green wanted the American dream. I got a proposition. We bring Danny in the mix. So he took it. Good call, Danny. Place like Sears Worldwide. Put your way, you know that? Don't rock the boat, Joe. Come here, I want to show you something. I provide a unique financial service. Loan sharking. <laughs> Stop it, Tom. Sean Laverne says you've been doing a good job for him. But we take our cut. We do all the work and you get 30% for doing nothing. That's the arrangement. You guys let me drive for too long. Irishman's in business for himself now. I take this city over. This guy, he went on television daring us to do something about it. Your people, you can't do a simple job? My enemies will be taken care of. I promise. Shandor Burns. Watch your back. 36 bombs exploded. Really think the luck of the Irish is going to save you? I've not built a bomb big enough to kill you. Give this to the man who kills the Irish. This is one guy, and you can't take care of it. We've shot him, we've blown him up. He just won't die. Twenty-five G's for the head of Danny Green. Twenty-five. In cash. <laughs> Come on, you should be flattered. So let the Danny Green is something of a folk hero to the people of Cleveland. Even though he was a terrible person who murdered countless people, if it hadn't been for him, the mafia would still have an iron grip on Cleveland. The mafia still exists in Cleveland, but nowhere near the way that it used to. He also did a lot of good for the people in his community, almost like a modern-day Robin Hood. If you get a chance, I highly recommend you watch the movie Kill the Irishman. It is a highly underrated movie. It ranks as one of my all-time favorite mob movies. As someone who is a third Irish, 
every St. Patrick's Day, I always have a toast to Danny Green. I hope the luck of the Irish followed him into the afterlife.